Most still life paintings are of fruit or flowers, maybe a bowl or a vase, some rumpled cloth, a plate of food, things you find on a tabletop. But one day in 1886, while he was living in Paris, Vincent van Gogh had another idea. He'd bought an old, worn-out pair of shoes at a flea market, work boots really, dark brown and floppy and scuffed. And then, after wearing them around the muddy streets of Paris, Vincent decided to paint them, just sitting there, side by side on the floor, mud, scuffs and all. Old shoes were an unusual subject for a still life, and no doubt for Vincent, that was part of the point. Throughout his work, Vincent reveled in finding beauty and presence in ordinary places and things. He once wrote to his brother Theo, Poetry surrounds us everywhere, but putting it on paper is, alas, not so easy as looking at it. Visual poetry, even in an old, muddy, cast-off pair of shoes. And when he turned to those shoes, when he set them on the floor in front of him and opened up his paints and set the canvas on the easel, he was drawing on a deep practice in human history, whether he was consciously thinking about it or not, the practice of careful, reverent attention to feet. If you think about it, a pair of worn-out shoes is one of the most intimate, most ordinary, most articulate objects you own. Each pair tells a story. And in the ancient world, feet and shoes were considered important, consequential things. Think of Moses taking off his shoes when he sees the burning bush, when he senses he's on holy ground. Or think of John the Baptizer saying of Jesus, Someone more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Or again, think of Jesus on the last night of his life, getting a bowl of water and a towel and washing the disciples' feet. Or think of Lazarus's sister, Mary, who tenderly anoints Jesus's feet with expensive aromatic perfume. Judas is outraged, saying the perfume could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. But Jesus defends Mary, and in the process, delivers one of his most controversial and misunderstood lines. You always have the poor with you. And so the question arises, what does he mean by that? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. To understand what's really going on here, we have to go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy and the story there of Moses presenting the law to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 15, Moses is addressing the idea of the sabbatical year, an every seven years practice of forgiving all debts. Now, that sounds pretty good, right? Every seven years, all the accounts are cleared. But think of what that would mean for years five and six. People who might otherwise be inclined to help, to give someone in debt some relief, might entertain a mean thought, as Moses puts it, thinking to themselves, well, the seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and so I'll just give nothing. Against this mean thought, Moses exhorts the Israelites, on the contrary, to give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. 
whether the sabbatical year is imminent or not. In other words, says Moses, don't be tight-fisted, but rather open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. No matter what year it is, we are called to live out a continually open-handed way of life. Now, does this mean there will always be impoverished people to whom we can be open-handed? Moses is clear that God's ultimate vision for Israelite society is that there will be no one in need among you. That's from Deuteronomy 15 too. And in the meantime, since there will never cease to be some need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy. In short, no one in need is God's ultimate vision for society. Open your hand is part of the pathway for getting there. And that idea, that line from Deuteronomy, since there will never cease to be some need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy, that's the line Jesus will evoke in his confrontation with Judas. This is one of the major ways the Bible works, one of the methods we find within its pages again and again. Jesus doesn't just teach He quotes and cites and riffs and alludes to other teachings and stories in Scripture, drawing on their key images and ideas and applying them to the current situation. It's like when a painter chooses a subject or paints the subject in a particular way, referencing other paintings that have come before. To put an old pair of shoes in the center of a still life is to allude to the tradition of still-life painting and to trade on the way that tradition elevates everyday objects. It's to lift up those old shoes to a higher status, as if they are as worthy of our attention as all those bowls of fruit and plates of food and vases of flowers and swaths of cloth. The painter paints within a gallery already filled with other older paintings. There's a portrait of Genesis, another from Deuteronomy, and down the hall, there's one from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus isn't the only visionary artist here. Lazarus's sister Mary paints a picture too. We are on the verge of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We're in the town of Bethany, just outside the holy city on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. As John tells it, the jubilant hosannas of Palm Sunday are about to ring out, and yet Lazarus's sister Mary sees what everyone else in the story overlooks. She sees that Jesus isn't painting an image of military triumph and vanquishing enemies, but rather he's painting a portrait of a suffering servant like the mysterious figure in that old painting, you know, the one painted by the ancient prophet in Isaiah 53. Mary sees what's going on, and she knows what to do. She takes down a flask from the shelf, a flask of expensive perfume. Maybe she's been saving it for a special occasion. Maybe she'd taken her savings and bought it down at the market. Lazarus is hosting Jesus and his disciples for dinner, just a week before Passover. And here's Mary, flask in hand, boldly, silently approaching Jesus. She opens the flask, 
She kneels down on the floor, just as Jesus a few days later, perhaps thinking of her, will kneel down at the feet of his disciples. And she carefully, tenderly anoints Jesus' feet. Imagine the hush that falls over that table. Jesus doesn't stop her. He understands what she's doing. She's anointing his body for burial. She sees what the disciples either miss or refuse to see, that Jesus, even as he prepares for his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, is also preparing for his death. Judas pipes up, why this waste? Why not sell this expensive perfume and give the proceeds to the poor? And so Jesus, defending Mary and drawing on Deuteronomy, rebukes Judas. It's as if he says, listen, leave her alone. She sees our situation better than you do. I am about to leave you. My death is drawing near. Will you not honor my body here in the shadow of death as Mary has done? Even worse, will you scold her, dishonor her for doing so? And as for helping the poor, as Moses has said, you can and should continually be generous. So why don't you go ahead and do that yourself, Judas, rather than judging and demeaning Mary? You hypocrite. You make a show of being supposedly open-handed, but in truth, your fist is closed. The contrast in the scene is crisp and clear. On one side, the closed, contemptuous fist of Judas, and on the other side, Mary's open, tender hand. Jesus exalts Mary as an exemplar. She acts with more insight and open-handed grace than anyone else in the story. She sees Jesus is on the verge of a great trial and a degrading death, and so she honors him ahead of time, offering him solace and encouragement with an almost unbearable tenderness. And at the same time, Jesus puts Judas in his place by exposing his hypocrisy. Having an open hand to the poor should be a continual stance, Jesus says, echoing Moses, not a cudgel for judging others. Yes, moving toward a society in which there is no one in need should be our overarching goal. But along the way, there are milestones when special acts of generosity, moments of extravagance in love, are beautiful and fitting. Burying the dead is one of those moments, and Jesus is on the precipice of death. This is no ordinary dinner gathering. This is farewell. Far from condoning unkindness toward neighbors in need, then, Jesus reaffirms the opposite by invoking Deuteronomy 15, both the neighborly open-handedness God commands and the poverty-free society God envisions. The beloved community that will come into being, please note, not only through neighborly giving, 
but also through social structures and practices at least loosely akin to the sabbatical year. We may indeed open our hands to each other personally, and at the same time open our hands communally by building social systems that help counter the root causes of poverty in the first place. The good news of the gospel is that God calls us toward this personal and communal vision of a generous, just, wisely structured world, and at the same time, blesses each one of us with the wisdom and discernment to follow Mary's lead, opening our hands in ways that honor one another in love and grace. Throughout his life, Vincent van Gogh was profoundly interested in the lives of impoverished communities and people. Like a kind of artistic friar, Vincent lived a life of poverty himself. Friars were monks who voluntarily lived in poverty, residing not in monasteries, but out and about in the world. St. Francis is a famous example. And in this painting, this still life of an old, worn-out pair of shoes, Vincent, like Mary, turns his attention to the feet of a human being. His own feet, since he'd walked in those shoes through the muddy streets of Paris, but also the feet of the anonymous former owner of those shoes. And by extension, the feet of ordinary working people everywhere. Thinking this way can help us see this famous painting with new eyes. As a portrait, say, that lifts up the common everyday objects in our lives, inviting us to see their beauty. As a portrait, say, that lifts up the people who wear such shoes, inviting us to see our dignity. As a portrait, say, of struggle and grace, inviting us to imaginatively walk in the shoes of our neighbors, to understand them and identify with them, and ultimately to open our hands to them in generosity and joy. And from all of these angles, the invitation Vincent offers is the same invitation Mary offers, the same invitation Jesus offers, a call to take up a particular way of seeing and experiencing the world. To notice the most ordinary, intimate, articulate objects, each one tells a story. And to notice the ordinary, everyday lives of our neighbors, especially those neighbors we might be tempted to overlook. Each one is living a story. And to notice, accordingly, the ordinary, everyday opportunities we have to open our hands, to continually open our hands, and to follow Mary by wisely, carefully introducing occasional moments of extravagance in love, precisely when they are the most beautiful and fitting, to notice and to act. Poetry surrounds us everywhere, says Vincent, even in an old, muddy, cast-off pair of shoes. Even in a poor painter, walking the muddy streets of Paris, heading home to paint a new kind of still life. Poetry we can see, and poetry we can make. 
opening our hands, even and especially in the face of trials, of violence, of the gathering shadows of death, even then, even now, we can take down the flask from the shelf and boldly, humbly fill the house with the fragrance of dignity, tenderness, and light. Gospel According to Vincent is a mini-series by Strange New World, a SALT project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer-Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer-Bolton. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has a devotional called Vincent van Gogh and the Beauty of Lent, which includes more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. You can find it in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.